This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Thursday, October the 5th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, season four of Level Playing Field debuted this week on AMI-tv. Alex, Accessibility Standards Canada has opened their draft regulations for public review. Accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore tells you what that means, especially walking you through the standard for employment. And yesterday's Google Pixel events showcased a whole range of new products. Marco Flalo will give you the lowdown. That's also going to be uh, relating to the topic of the daily poll. But before you get any of that, here is the top story of the day. And it comes from the world of federal politics. The federal New Democrats have rejected the first draft of the Trudeau Liberals' farmer care legislation. Brenda Molina Navidad has the latest. NDP health critic Don Davies says the first draft didn't meet expectations, saying the NDP will accept nothing less than a commitment to pharmacare paid for and administered through the public single-payer system, though it doesn't have to happen all at once. The Liberals promised to table pharmacare legislation this fall as part of the supply and confidence deal the government struck with the NDP. That deal calls for progress toward a universal national pharmacare program and the passage of initial legislation before the end of the year. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. Looking south of the border, there's a healthcare story brambling up that's quite interesting. Healthcare workers in the United States have been picketing outside hospitals in multiple states. Ben Thomas has the story. Some 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers have walked off the job. Unions approving a three-day strike in California, Colorado, Oregon and Washington state. One day in Virginia and D.C. Issues include wages and staff shortages. They're not listening to the frontline healthcare workers. Nurse Mickey Flatcher in Camarillo, California. About solutions to uh, the Kaiser Permanente staffing shortage. Doctors are not participating, and Kaiser says it'll keep its 39 hospitals open. We've got to keep our emergency departments open, and we will. Michelle Gaskell-Hames. We're marshalling resources from across our integrated system, and we are bringing in replacement workers as well. I'm Ben Thomas. And one story from the economic front, oil prices are falling sharply. Alex Stone drills down on the details. It's been over a year since oil prices have dropped this much this quickly. A week ago, oil was hovering at almost $100 a barrel, now closing on Wednesday around 85 bucks. Tom Close, analyst at the Oil Price Information Service, says recession fears are reducing demand for oil. He says a price drop is about to have a quick impact on gas prices. And we've seen gasoline prices on the wholesale market drop anywhere from 50 cents to a dollar fifty, which is really almost unprecedented. And from the wholesale market, it'll move to what we pay at the pump. Alex Stone, EBC News. Looking forward to the uh, Bank of Canada taking a victory lap when the October inflation numbers came out, and they said, "Oh, it was uh, we did it. We we lowered the oil prices, and that's what slowed down inflation in October." Maybe I'll save that rant for November, though. I guess I should pace myself one day at a time. 
Okay, I've got one story here from the entertainment file because it ruffled my feathers this morning, therefore I intended to ruffle your feathers as well. The Hollywood Reporter has revealed their top 50 TV shows of the 21st century. Jason Nathanson has the list. Topping the Hollywood Reporter's list of the best TV shows of the past 24 years. Advertising is based on one thing, happiness. Mad Men reigns supreme. The AMC show about the flawed souls who work at a Manhattan ad firm in the 1960s made John Hamm and Elizabeth Moss household names. The list ranked by three Hollywood Reporter TV critics who put The Sopranos at number two, Succession at number three, Tina Fey's 30 Rock in fourth, and HBO's The Wire at number five. Elsewhere on the list, BoJack Horseman, the top animated show at number 10, with Survivor, the top reality show, at number 23. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. Okay, I like the list. Top pick for Mad Men, really, really good. BoJack Horseman, number 10 on the list. Top animated show, fantastic. One of the most interesting explorations of addiction and mental health through a, a sincere and absurdist lens all at the same time. Real, real good. Real impressive. Here's my beef. How is Breaking Bad not in the top five, if not the top three? 30 Rock is a great, great call as a comedy at number four. Really great show. If you've never watched it, 30 Rock was really, really good. But I don't know about Succession at number three. That seems like a little bit of recency bias here. Where's the Breaking Bad? Where's the Better Call Saul? I might tell you that Breaking Bad is the best TV show of the 21st century, but I'm willing to accept the reality that Mad Men might get ahead of it or The Sopranos might get ahead of it. Eliza Rocco came in here this morning to adjust the cameras. Sex in the City at number 50. Preposterous. A crime. A crime, I tell you. This is not the Daily Poll, but Alex Smythe, what is the best TV show of the 21st century? I'm going off the board, Dave, and I'm going animated. I'm going to say Love, Death, and Robots. For those who have never seen it, it is a small anthology series that's on Netflix. They've had like four seasons now. They tell between seven and 25 minute animated stories. Every single story oh. is done in a different animation style. It all has to do uh, either with the themes of love, death, or robot. So it's a sci-fi animated series, but think outside the box. It'd be, it could be real life animation. It could be cartoonish animation. Okay. It could be kind of like block motion. They're heavy, they're light, some are dark, some are funny, some are scary. It is the one of the most creative uh, TV series, anthology series I've ever experienced. I go back constantly, and the great wow. part is they're digestible little bites. You can watch one or two, move on, and come back, and each one's different, so you never feel like you're losing anything. That is high praise, Alex. Where can I find this show? Netflix, Dave, it, it, they're, all the seasons are on Netflix, and it's all done through Blur Studios, who, which is run by Tim Miller, who directed the first Deadpool movie, oh. along with many other classics. Wow, okay, look at Alex going off the board. Amanda Shikarchi, that's going to be tough for you to follow there. Alex, uh, Alex threw, the, threw the horn down at us. Well, I'm also going to go off the board with a show that I feel deserves more love. It's also on Netflix. It's called Shadow Hunters, and it's based off of the Mortal Instrument series and basically follows this girl named Clary who realizes at 16 that she 
everything she knew when she was little was not always true, that she's actually part of this supernatural world called the Shadow Hunters and has to learn this new new world, which is kind of a little bit dark. And I think what stands out to me is not just the character development here, but also how the music really makes you understand the character's emotions and the character's worlds a little bit more. Um, there are three seasons, um, all really amazing, great cast and was actually oh. filmed here in Toronto. Oh my God, you're both throwing down the gauntlet here in a big way. Now I feel like I'm Mr. Mainstream boring guy over here. Too basic as Amanda and Alex are throwing down the gauntlet in a big way talking about the greatest uh, TV show of the 21st century. Well done by both of you on that front. Don't go too far because I'm also going to ask you the daily polls in about 40 seconds at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. But before you get today's poll, Here's the results from yesterday's question. It was all about some civil planning strife in the city of Montreal, trying to bring in more bike lanes, and some residents saying, no, we don't like this. So I'm asking you, or I did ask you, I'm still asking you, what can cities do to make you feel safer about more bike infrastructure? 60% of you said large barriers, 20% of you said elevated crosswalks, and 20% of you said mandatory noise levels, and 0% of you said other. Today's Daily Poll comes from the Google event that took place yesterday. Google just unveiled new phones and accessories. Here's the question that I'm asking you. Do you try to buy devices and accessories from the same brand? In other words, how brand loyal are you with your technology? Very, somewhat, a little, or not at all. Marco Flalo is going to have the inside scoop on the new Pixel phones and some of the accessories. Amanda Shikarchi, one of the running jokes on this show is that I am not brand loyal at all with my technology, except maybe my phone, but everything else, the accessories around it, not at all. I use about a bazillion different kinds of technology, some generic, some third party, some brand name, none of it syncing up, none of it frictionless. It's a whole bunch of friction in my life when it comes to technology, but I don't bother trying to buy stuff from the same brand at all. What about you? You're an iPhone user. You got the Apple Watch, the AirPods, all that good stuff? Yeah, I definitely have an Apple Orchard over here <laughs> with my laptop, iPad, iPhone. And really, it comes down to the fact that the accessibility features for me are extremely helpful. And even just setting up a device, you can do it totally independently with voiceover. And even things like putting in your touch ID, it'll tell you when to place and lift your finger, which means you don't need to ask anyone for help. And voiceover is a system that I've been using for years and just been working for me. And so that's what gravitates me towards these devices because I love all the apps and I love all the accessibility features that come with Apple products. You know, it's interesting you use that word seamless, Amanda, because although seamless connection is not listed as an accessibility feature directly, seamlessness and less barriers in connecting your stuff together, that is kind of like an accessibility feature, if not by name specifically. Yeah, totally. Like I saw a Facebook post yesterday, someone reflecting on how easy it was for her to set up 
all her Apple devices and being, you know, being able to have that freedom as someone with a disability, it definitely opens the world up in a new way because we don't always feel like we're reliant on someone to give us the visual help that yeah. we, we might need otherwise. Alex, you're a modern man. I feel like your technology is seamless around the Smythe household. It's getting there, Dave, and this all kind of started by accident. So I'm I'm really kind of leaned into the Apple, um, I guess, uh, ecosystem over the past uh, several years. And it started 10 years ago when I got a MacBook for um, J School. There was the requirements for the program. I had to get a very specific uh, a computer that had capabilities to do all the editing and that I needed, and they suggested a MacBook. I had never owned an Apple product before that. And you know what? 10 years later, it still works great. It's still functional, even though I put it through its paces with all the heavy editing that I did in school. Eventually after that, you know, time went by, I got an iPad because we had had Samsung and other branded uh, tablets, but they never lasted. And then we finally got an, an iPad in the house and it was not having the same issues that we had encountered with all these other devices. So it really started coming because of the quality and the longevity of these devices. So then I, I got another one. And then you know what? I, it came time to replace my phone. I got an iPhone because it was something that I've seen tested and trusted on based on the quality of the products. I, yeah. I've had Android all the time before that. And I finally made the switch, and I got to tell you, Dave, I'm quite happy with it because there is that seamlessness. There is that cross-connection, that frictionless uh, uh, connectivity. If you're setting up a new device or you're linking a device, it's really easy. Yeah, but yeah. beyond just Apple, I, I have other like brand loyals for like TVs and stuff like that because you, you build it over experience. You know, sometime we've got to send a camera into my house with one of our technical producers and do a full inventory of the uh, technology that makes no sense around my house. Like literally do a piece by piece inventory of all the random bits and bobs and third party no name brands that I'm using and just sort of put it out on my coffee table and be like, this is the absurd world that Dave Brown lives in. I don't know if that's good content. I don't know if that's me being too inward looking, but I'm, I'm probably more on the outs here than anybody else. I think a lot of people would both be closer to you, Alex, and you, Amanda, when it comes to this kind of tech loyalty because of what you've both identified there. It makes my tech easier to use, and maybe I'm underestimating how useful that is, Alex. Yeah, Dave, I, honestly, you, it can really come in handy. I didn't think I would uh, really enjoy or, or need that, uh, that frictionless and that interconnectivity with all the different devices, but I really enjoy it. The fact like I have an Apple TV, I just, I had to get it because it had all the apps I wanted. A lot of the other ones didn't have it yeah. all. Well, this one did. And then now I can control it by my phone seamlessly. I didn't set it up. It just kind of appeared once it detected that I had an iPhone. So it's things like that where you're like, okay, well, this is just making my life easier. I don't know how I feel about this. I never would have thought about this before, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm really happy it's here. Is that the opposite of the Joni Mitchell? You don't know what you've got till it's gone. In this case, you don't know what you've got till it's in your hand <laughs> and automatically yeah, doing much. things for you. <laughs> pretty much. Oh my gosh. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, do you try and buy devices and accessories from the same brand? In other words, how brand loyal are you with your technology? Very somewhat a little or not at all. Of course, if you don't want to vote on social media, you can also chime in via email 
feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, season four of Level Playing Field debuted this week on AMI-TV. Alex Smythe did some journalism, caught up with Greg Westlake, the host of the show, so you'll get a taste of Alex's conversation with Greg after the break. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Level Playing Field debuted its fourth season this week. AMI celebrated the launch with a private screening of the show. So private, I wasn't even invited. The event took place at the Miles Nadal Jewish Community Center in Toronto. Alex Smythe was there to take it all in. Hey, Alex. Hey, Dave, how's it going? I'm good. I was invited. I just I just chose not to go. I don't do evening events uh, <laughs> during the work week. I wake up too early. Alex, uh, before you get into the new season, how'd the event go? The event was phenomenal. You know, it, it was a, a great turnout. There were a lot of representation from different organizations, from uh, para-athletic uh, para organizations, from Parasport Ontario to the CPC to members of AMI were there and, and other members of the media. So it was a great event to get lots of exposure on a great series that I've been fortunate enough to work on in the past and, and see my former team continue to work on now. So it, it was great. And uh, the event was also, uh, you had a screening of a full episode plus some features of other upcoming episodes. And then after that, it was a panel discussion with CBC's Devin Haru. So it was a full evening of different things and activities going on. Cool. Yeah, Alex, uh, you definitely had your fingerprints in the inception of that show. Like the, there still is some fingerprints of Alex Smythe in Level Playing Field. The new, the new episodes roll out on Tuesdays. What uh, struck you? What did you like about what you saw so far from the latest season? Well, I think we just get to really dive into the lives and the stories of some of these athletes just a little bit more you know we can they they started to get more creative and and more colorful and where they were able to really capture athletes in in their elements like for one of the the athletes that uh, were profiled that were at the event uh, brianna hennessy she is a paddle sport athlete so she does a para kayak and para canoe and being able to be out on the water with her and, and just see as she like just goes through the waves like nothing and, and just picking up great speed. That that is something that, you know, I, I know the team really had worked to get more involved with, get more of those shots, those those beauty shots as we like to call them. That you just there's that beauty in the in the simplicity of just seeing mm. an athlete go full a speed on the water in their element and that's really what they've been able to capture this season all right on well you had a chance to interview paralympian greg westlake who's number one a tremendous guy number two the host of the show let's dive into that conversation greg thanks so much for being here thanks it's season four of level playing field this has been something that you've been involved with since the beginning what are you excited for fans to experience with this new season 
Well, I'm, I'm excited because I think this season we took it to, to new levels it's never been before. And when I first came in, I was an active athlete. So when I came in, I was hosting, but that was it. I would show up the day we were shooting. I, I would read my notes and I would do my best because I, I really believe in what we're doing here and the athletes that we feature and the organizations that we feature, I believe in it. So I would do my best. But now it, I, I get to really sink my teeth into it. I, I get to really help choose some of the stories we do. We got to travel all over Canada. AMI has been such a great partner for us. We went to Comox Valley in BC. We were out to Montreal. We'll get to the East Coast next season. But we got to really travel and get all the athletes that we really, really wanted to get this season. And I just think it makes for better TV because we're not just Ontario-based. We're not just Toronto-based. We are now a nationwide program. Program. And I think that's really exciting because no story is being left untold. Okay, now dive a bit deeper into that. You talked about getting across the country, all the different locations. What about the sports? What are the sports that you got to really dive into and explore this season that maybe you haven't in previous seasons? You know, it's a great question because I come from a team sport background. So when you look at some of the athletes we feature and the, and the community organizations that we feature, it's stuff that I don't know a lot about. So some of these interactions you see with me on camera are so genuine. You know, Marissa Papakonstantino is going to be here. She, uh, we did a big feature on her in sprinting. I know nothing about sprinting. We had a great chat on camera. I hope that comes out and comes through and shines through. Uh, Brianna Hennessy's here. She's somebody that acquired a disability later in life, something that I know nothing about. She, she is just this kick butt woman who, who is now like a leader in, in her field and I can't wait to tell her story. Um, all these things. So for me, just being from a team sport background or coming in and interviewing these people and it's really had a profound impact on my life and the way that I just view my day-to-day -day life. So it's been really, really fun. And I've learned so much about the other sports, whether it's sprinting, uh, Tyler Turner. Uh, we went out to Comox Valley and interviewed him. He just came second on the Amazing Race Canada. You know, he's an amazing guy. And almost more than the sports that these amazing athletes and people compete in, it's who they are as people away from their field of play. And that's what we dive into as well. Are they family people? Are they involved in their community? And, and it's a resounding yes, mostly. It's a lot of people that are so connected and have roots all over Canada. And that's what I think shines through. And so again, you look at Tyler, he is a snowboard champion for the Canadian Paralympic team. But what you don't know is that he's this crazy skydiver that just wants me to jump out of a plane with him five minutes after I land on the ground in BC. And so tune in and find out if I jumped out of a plane with this man. Yeah, I was going to say, don't give the spoilers yet. You got to give the fans something to tune into. Uh, so you kind of talked about it off the top, but how has the show evolved or grown over the now four seasons? Well, again, a great question. I, I think for us, streamlining our process and I'm just a face and, and I talk to people and I ask crazy questions but the people behind me Ted and Matt they're, they're so passionate about parasport they're so passionate about helping people grow their brands and become successful it makes my job easy I get notes and I get questions and I get sheets with all these details from an amazing team of people behind me that are so into this project. This is a passion project, it's a labor of love, and now we get to share it with the world, and we can't wait. Now, obviously, uh, uh, Ted and Matt, Ted Cooper, the show's uh, producer, and Matt McGurk, the show's director of photography you're referencing there. In, in terms of what 
happens next. How do you want to see this show grow, evolve, and where do you want to go next with it? Well, I just want to keep going. Um, there's always, as a lot of people would know with sports, there's always the next person coming. There's always the next superstar. There's always somebody that's pushing the boundaries, doing something that's never been done. And we want to find those people. And so as we know with sports, it's perpetual motion. It's constantly thriving and evolving. And that's why we need to keep going. And that's why we need season after season after season is because these stories write them, they don't write themselves, but there's always people coming. And, and I, I would hate to stop doing this show and then all of a sudden we miss out on some great charitable donation, some great charitable act, some kind of groundbreaking Paralympic performance. Like these are amazing things that we need to capture in Canada and we don't do a good job of it right now. And so we're here kind of raising our hands saying, we'll capture it, we'll do it. And, and so that's why it has to keep going. The people that this show touches and impacts is quite profound. The people who love this show, they don't just love it, like, like they swear by it. And, and the messages I get on Instagram and social media, it, it inspires me to keep going every day because it, it really does change people's lives and it gives hope and inspiration for so many people. Now, I know you're very busy. One last question before you go. If you had to choose one story, one profile, one athlete this season, who was the one that really stood out to you? Oh, that's, <laughs> you can't do that to me. Um, there's a lot. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to answer that directly, but I'll, I'll give you one that I was, I was so pumped to do because I, I grew up, um, I, lo I used to love jujitsu and kickboxing when I was a kid. So I loved it. I used to go, like, Every week I would go, I have a blue belt jiu-jitsu. I, I was like, I loved it. And so we got to feature somebody who really has no connection to the para world this year, uh, a fighter out of Alberta named Jake Peacock. Does not play any para sports, really doesn't know anything about the Paralympic movement, but he's in this brutal combat world fighting other able-bodied athletes, and he's at a disadvantage. And so that was one for me that, that was really interesting because I'm used to interviewing and being around people that just know so much about the Paralympics and the IPC and, and the CPC and everything that I know about. And he really pushed me outside of my comfort zone of, no, this guy just is trying to make it in a brutal brutal world so that was a real fun one that's one that i would recommend checking out as well greg thank you so much appreciate you take care that's alex's conversation with greg westlake the host of level playing field but alex you didn't just speak to greg while you were at this event you've got a couple more interviews to roll out here over the course of the next couple of weeks who'd you talk to yeah, so uh, Greg uh, kind of teased him in, in the interview. Uh, Marissa Papaconstantinou, who is a para sprinter, she was at the event. I got to catch up with her and kind of talk about her career and the highs and lows that she's experienced from injuries to disqualification from, and, uh, uh, from the Paralympics to actually getting through, meddling at the Paralympics, setting personal best, and, and really achieving those highs after struggles earlier in her career. And then I also got to catch up with Brianna Hennessy, who I mentioned is a multi-sport athlete. She started in uh, wheelchair rugby, then kind of discovered paddle sports. And within a matter of months, she went from never having been into a canoe or a kayak to qualifying for the Paris Paralympics. So it's really fascinating to have both those conversations and, and see them go in different directions. So uh, 
audiences will have to stay tuned for those interviews. Right on. Alex, thank you for this. Don't go too far because you'll be back for the weather report after the break. Level Playing Field airs Tuesdays, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. You know you can find those episodes on demand on the AMI app after they air. Coming up after the break, Accessibility Standards Canada has opened their draft regulations for public review. Accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore walks you through their standard for employment. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Just in time for Disability Employment Awareness Month, Accessibility Standards Canada is asking for feedback on its draft employment standard. Accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore has reviewed the standard. Hey, good morning, Megan. Good morning, Dave. Megan, let's jump right in here. What type of work sure. does this apply to? All right, so because this is from Accessible, uh, Accessibility Standards Canada, say it with me, everybody. This is for federally regulated places of employment. Very good. So that would be jobs that are listed in the Canada Human Rights Act or the Accessible Canada Act. Again, this is federally regulated industries, but this the authors of the standard do note that obviously any employer can read this and adopt some of these practices in their work. And then in terms of workers, um, the authors make it very clear that while this does apply to full-time workers, we consider like your average typical worker, um, it also applies to part-time workers, to gig workers, to temporary mm. workers, to students who are doing like work placements for school, uh, and for workers who are on site or workers who work remotely. So they really tried to be as inclusive and expansive in their definition of who a worker is. Yeah, when you think about a federally regulated industry, a couple of tangible examples for folks would certainly be the transportation industry, right? Mm -hmm. Train travel, air travel, but that also can trickle down into spaces like banks, telecommunications. So these are some of like the biggest industries in the country. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not a small thing. So even if you don't work in a federally regulated industry and you're just like, oh, like this doesn't matter to me. Actually, it does matter to you because you're interacting with those employees all the time and the better we can support employees with disabilities, the better customer service they can give right to on. the general public. Right on. So Megan, what are the main ways the standard recommends making workplaces inclusive? I imagine this could be quite a long answer. <laughs> Yeah, it could be, so I'm just going to summarize it. Um, what the authors recommend is combining two approaches that we often see in disability accommodations or even in when we talk about disability, and those are the systemic and like policy things, and then also individualization to each person. So it's actually recommending that you combine both of those things and makes an argument that you need both systemic structural changes, but also individual uh, tailorization of your accessibility work. What is, what is the standard considering in regards to an employment life cycle? What are they trying to get at with that? Yeah, okay, so this phrase comes up a lot and in the standard. And what they mean by that, what the authors of the standard mean is they mean like all parts 
of an employee's journey with a company. So that's starting with recruitment, like literally starting with the job posting that is put out for a position and then going through like the interview process and the hiring process and then the onboarding process. And then once somebody is onboarded, onboarded to a new position, retention, how do you keep them there? And then promotion, right? We want to see people progress in their careers and then performance management to make sure that people are still performing to the best of their ability and then finally separation like your job will end one day right mm. you're gonna retire or you're gonna move I'm gonna on work, gonna I'm gonna die. work I'm like, gonna work forever Megan okay well okay besides besides you the rest of us will not be at our jobs forever <laughs> just because we're human beings um so uh like talking about how does disability influence when somebody has to leave a job and then there's also uh portions in this standard that speak to what happens when somebody acquires a disability while they're working or during their course of employment so whereas i would come to a job as somebody who's born with a disability, lives with a disability. What about somebody else who acquires their disability while they're working? There's uh, standards that kind of relate to that situation right. as well. Now, Megan, I'm I'm going to die in this chair giving takes about the Bank of Canada and monetary policy <laughs> and self-driven inflation. That that that's how it's going to end for me one day. I'm just going <laughs> to keel over. Uh, Megan, what are some of the specific recommendations that stood out to you? Sure. So uh, one that really stood out to me is job postings. I know that's where I've personally encountered a lot of barriers mm -hmm. to employment based mm -hmm. on my disability. Um, and there is a recommendation that where like bona fide occupational requirements exist for a position, like something that is like definitely 100% needed, that those are identified, like identify which ones are actually part of the selection criteria. Um, and that stood out to me because one of the job requirements that often like causes me to like go into an existential crisis is is a driver's license right and yeah, i don't know yeah. like do i actually need a driver's license do i not so what this recommendation is saying is that you need to identify which criteria people are actually going to be selected upon uh, there's a lot of recommendations around job interviews. So like from telling people how long an interview can expect to be so that they can play in transportation. If you have to arrange all, like alternative methods of transportation, that's really helpful. Um, and then also like giving the option for somebody to have a support person to join them in an interview if they need that, that's there. Uh, there's a lot of things on onboarding. Um, so and this is something I found actually really interesting, and I hope companies pay attention to this. So a lot of jobs, like we have that three-month probationary period. The standard is recommending that uh, employers establish that that typical probation period begins only when appropriate accom accom accommodations have been made for workers. So you can't judge somebody's employment like how well they're doing until you have given them the appropriate accommodations to do their job um i think promotions is just interesting uh recognizing that we need like that people with disabilities want to be promoted um that's really important um <laughs> like right because i think disability employment awareness month we're like all we need is to give them a job yeah, right yeah. And you're Ma like no actually Megan, that, that is that is one of my greatest hits whenever i talk about disability and employment is talking about what's the track to management what's the track to executive right it's it's yeah. great to have a bunch of people in like your lowest rung no authority positions in a company what about yeah. decision making
Exactly, right? And there, that's a whole bigger conversation to have. But I, I, so I'm glad this standard is uh, bringing that up. It, the standard also rec uh, recognizes a lot that requests for accommodations are going to occur often throughout somebody's employment life cycle, that they're going to change, that they need to be updated, that you need to update just like your accessibility uh, plans and your software to make sure that everything still works. So there is an awareness that requesting accommodations and providing them is not a one-time deal. Yeah, it's it's a living spectrum. It's an, it's a yeah. spectrum that evolves going through. And you know, Megan, that's one of the things, right? People might hear the word standard and it doesn't really mean anything, but you could probably use some, uh, some other names for this, some synonyms, things like a blueprint or a guiding mm -hmm. path to say, here are the considerations that you must do to meet a standard, right? It ends up being a little bit of a roadmap. Uh, Megan, artificial intelligence already exists in workplaces. It's going to become more prominent in workplaces. How does the draft standard address AI? So the draft standard specifically addresses the way that AI can be used in hiring processes, like interview processes, et cetera. Uh, so there's a lot of language in this uh, draft standard about making sure that AI tools are not programmed in a way that is discriminatory towards applicants with disabilities. It's really talking about bias that might be present in different AI tools. And also that applicants need to be informed if AI is being used um, throughout this hiring process, and they need to be asked if uh, if they need any accommodations. So being upfront that, we're up, that we are using AI, but also doing as much as you can to ensure that AI doesn't have biases ingrained in the programs themselves that would discriminate against potential employers with dis employees with disabilities. So the draft regulations for the standard on employment are now open for public review. It's going to be available until 3 p.m. Eastern time on October 31st, so just in time to go trick-or-treating. Uh, for more information, you can visit the Accessibility Standards Canada website. It's accessible.com canada.ca accessible.canada.ca but Megan if people want to give feedback there's probably some advice on trying to read a lot of this document or the entire document one of the things I admire about you so dearly is you are really good about going through these documents and pulling out the details what's some advice that you want to give if somebody doesn't want to read the whole thing but get the gist yeah. of it okay so first of all there is a summary document that has been prepared for you. If you're like me and you don't trust summary documents because you want to know what was left out, um, this full document is 91 pages. Woo. Yeah, I know. That's what it came out in my Word file when I downloaded it because there's a PDF version and a Word version. Um, so many of those pages are like literally the table of contents um, and then a list of definitions. There's a big definition section oh, yeah. in yeah. this draft. And then there's a bunch of appendices that I did not have time to get to, but they kind of give further background and they say things like 22% of Canadians are the age of 15 have a disability. And you're just like, yeah, that's why we're here. But yeah, so a lot of extra information, just as you know, the, the meat of the uh, recommendation is not 91 pages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Megan, this whole segment is about employment. There's some pretty exciting news for you on the employment right. front. You got a new gig with Canadian Affairs. What's going on? What's the good news? Sure. So um, I started a new position uh, this past week with Canadian Affairs, which is a new online, we're calling it online newspaper, a new Canadian uh, news site, um, canadianaffairs.news, if you'd like to go there. So I'm their reporter based in Ottawa. I have not posted anything yet, hopefully by the end of this week. 
Um, so I will be reporting there full time. The plan is still that these segments on AMI, now Jake Brown, are going to continue. I might just be introduced in a different way. Mm -hmm. and we may talk about other topics. But if you go to CanadianAffairs.news, once I finally have articles coming, you might see some stuff about topics that we've talked about on this show. <laughs> Expanded. There's a chance. So, yeah. Um, because, you know, there's the Canada National Disability Benefit thing. And like, the thing. whole world, the, yeah, all of Canada has not been listening to us since 2020, Dave. Talk about it. So, <laughs> education going along. Um, so, yes, uh, that's where you can find me. Um, and a lot of my application was based on work that I've done on this program. So, thank you for letting me uh, do that. Megan, you are one of the best journalists in the country. Keep up the fantastic work. Congratulations on the new gig. Really glad to hear you'll still be part of this family and this team as well, though. Uh, best of luck, Megan. Talk to you in a couple weeks. All right. Thank you. Have a good show. That's Megan Gilmore. A reminder that draft regulations for the standard on employment are open for public review. It's going to be available until 3 p.m. Eastern time on October 31st. For more information, visit the Accessibility Standards Canada website accessible.canada.ca. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day, but first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. Canada's main stock index eked out a small gain yesterday as gains led by utility and tech stocks outweighed a 4% drop in the energy index. Toronto's TSX index crept 13 points higher to 19,034. New York's Dow Jones average gained 127 points and the Nasdaq rose 176. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index surged 1.8% and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.70 cents U.S. A new report by Deloitte Canada says the coming startup of the Trans Mountain Pipeline between Alberta and the West Coast will help boost Canadian oil production to an all-time high of 375,000 barrels a day over the next two years. And a British-Canadian computer scientist who's often called the godfather of artificial intelligence says he's optimistic people are heeding concerns about the deep risks that advances in AI could cause. Jeffrey Hinton says the risks include joblessness, fake news and battle bots. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's go to Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, there continues to be some tumult in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, Dave, less than a month uh, ago when uh, post-tropical storm Lee battered the Maritimes, they got to prepare themselves for the next post-tropical storm. This time, it's going to be post-tropical storm Belief that is projected to hit and affect the maritime region this weekend over Thanksgiving. Currently, it's working its way up from the Caribbean. There is a chance that the tracks and, and the projections lead it away, but you know, right now it is projected to hit the maritime region. So that's going to bring strong winds, heavy rains. If it's it's supposed to be less severe than Lee was, um, where there were widespread power outages and, and coastal flooding, but it's still a reason to be on alert and pay attention to the weather as the weekend unfolds. Stock up on your storm chips. Alex, thank you for this. Coming up after the break, the Capitol Theater in Moncton, New Brunswick has caught the attention of new community reporter, Natalie Foucher. Natalie describes her inclusive experience at the venue. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You have probably noticed fresh voices and new viewpoints on the show in the last month. It is the new fiscal year for AMI, so it's kind of like a new season of Now with Dave Brown. Well, there's a new community reporter joining the team. Natalie Fougere will be filling the role in Moncton, New Brunswick. Hey, good morning, Natalie. Great to chat with you. Good morning, Dave. It's, it's such a pleasure to chat with you as well. So, Natalie, first things first. Who is Natalie Fougere? What makes you tick? <laughs> okay, well, um, I've been living in Moncton, New Brunswick, all of my life. Um, so uh, what makes me tick? I would say that um, I, I have a passion for many things. Uh, first of all, I have a passion for learning new things. I did complete a bachelor, uh, two bachelor's degrees from Université de Moncton. Uh, one was an arts multidisciplinary bachelor, uh, and the other one was in uh, translation. It was an accelerated program. So being bilingual, I've always been uh, passionate about languages. I also have a passion for uh, helping people around me. I, I've been involved in a number of uh, organizations, especially for people who have visual impairments, being uh, totally blind myself. Uh, I find that is very important. Uh, I, I have a newfound passion that I'll be talking about another time of uh, emotional fitness that I just recently completed my uh, coach course about being that listening ear for people. Mm. Um, I also have great passions about, uh, I, I'm like a social butterfly. I, I love to um, to be around people, socialize. I, I'm always up for different adventures, like all I have, like all over the, in different arts, cultural, uh, have a great passion for music, for food. So I, I have a great variety of, <laughs> of, of things that motivate me. And just to, what I like to do as well is to spread, um, positive energy around me like to uplift people because mm. that helps me uplift myself very much well natalie i cannot wait to start digging into some of the layers in that cake because it sounds like you are quite the renaissance woman uh, lots to talk about there but you mentioned your desire and love of culture you've been checking out a bunch of shows at the capitol theater in moncton so what have you been going to Yes, well, I've been going to a variety of shows because I do love music and all sorts of uh, different kinds of music. Like I did catch like a few tribute shows lately. Uh, I, I caught a, a Johnny Cash tribute show. And then uh, just to, to show the the big uh, wide range, then the week after I saw an ACDC tribute show. <laughs> so that like it just goes to show the difference of kinds of music. And I love to see different shows, like in both French and English. And uh, also with that stand-up, uh, I, I really love stand-up comedy as well. So there's a few shows I've been to, but uh, like uh, in French. Um, and But there's a few that are like upcoming as well that I'm really looking forward to. I, I find laughter is a, a good medicine. Mm. But uh, so there's a, a, a wide variety of shows that I've been going to, and even more so recently, uh, it'll explain why once I talk about it. Yeah, you, you know, you, you put the Capitol Theater on my radar here via email, and I went to the website yesterday, and I was blown away by the wide range of performances that are coming up. Like, like you said, comedy, music, theater, everything. It really seems like a wide-ranging offering for people in Moncton. But, of course, the venue itself can oftentimes be as good as the content that it's showing off. 
So how are staff members making your experience more enjoyable from like an inclusion or accessibility point of view when you go to the Capitol Theater? I have to say, Dave, that staff is a big, big uh, part of the experience because I find that the staff members at the Capitol are so uh, welcoming. Uh, I know that they probably know me, like some of them, because I've been going to a lot of shows. But I really find that uh, whether I'm calling or that I'm there in person, uh, they really uh, welcome me like uh, with open arms. And if I go there, if I go at the Capitol and that I need help to find my seat, because sometimes we're like two people with a visual impairment or if we're unsure, uh, the staff members are always there, like always willing to uh, direct us directly at, at our seat. And sometimes they'll even tell me like, wait until after the show and I'll, I'll come and get you uh, to make sure that you can find the door. So that's wonderful things that makes it accessible. Uh, there's also the fact that they, um, they allow me to, uh, thanks to the uh, access to entertainment card, uh, that's actually one of the recently um, added venues uh, that if I want to purchase a ticket and I have someone with me, that I can bring someone else with me for free. Oh, amazing. So so that's, that's one of the reasons that it's like a lot easier for me to be able to get to a lot of shows. They also have great accessible seating. They have spots for people in wheelchairs, but some of these spots can work for us as well. For example, if I call the Capitol and that a show is not sold out, they, and if let's say that there's just spots way up uh, in the balcony and it's very, very high, it's a little harder to, uh, to get there. Uh, they do have some spots that can be reserved for people with disabilities specifically. So I, I've had the chance to uh, take advantage of some of these seats as well. And it's, it's just amazing that they give us that experience. More broadly, what do you like about the theater? Because obviously you've become a regular there. Uh, you really you really enjoy it. What do you like about the theater? Absolutely. I love the fact that it's downtown because I do live downtown. So it's very close walking distance. It's just about five minutes from my apartment. So it's very uh, easy to uh, to access. I love just the venue all around. Like the sound quality is wonderful. It's a great uh, sound quality. I mean, the, the theater has been open for a number of years. Like it was built in 1920, but since 1993, it's been really recognized at the cent as the center of uh, performance arts, like a, 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 like a, of a culture uh, in, in Moncton. So I just love the fact that it's so accessible and uh, like always open to help us. And the, it's like you mentioned, Dave, the diversity of shows as yeah, well unbelievable really well if people do want to learn more maybe they're planning a trip to moncton capital.nb.ca capital.nb.ca the one thing you want to be mindful of is capital is spelt with an o capital is spelt with an o and of course a phone is more your style you can uh, call their information team area code 506 8564377. Hey Natalie, it was so great to meet you over the air today. I'm looking forward to a, an ongoing conversation with you over the course of the next year. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you as well. Looking forward to it. That's Natalie Fougere, community reporter in Moncton, New Brunswick. In 60 seconds, Amanda Shikarchi is going to have an entertainment story all about how you find new music and emerging artists. But first, 
Before Marka Flalo does a deep dive into Google's new phones in about 30 minutes, the phones also have Mike Dubusky's attention in tech trends. Outside of some new colors and a bigger camera array, the Pixel 8 and 8 Pro look pretty much the same as last year's models. The biggest thing I'd say with both phones is what's inside. Tom's Guide Editor-in-Chief Mike Prospero says that means a new Tensor G3 processor. Which will allow it to do a lot more of these AI tasks on the phone itself. One of those new applications is a feature called Audio Magic Eraser. For example, like a baby babbling. <laughs> and there's noise in the background, if like a dog barking or the TV is on or something like that, Google's AI will be able to let you filter those noises out of the video itself. And the Pro model gets a temperature sensor. Google also announced that it's looking to get FDA approval to measure the temperature of people. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Like I mentioned to you before, Marco Flalo will stop by in about 30 minutes with a uh, much more in-depth look on the uh, new Google phones and a couple of their accessories. Amanda Shikarchi, speaking of new stuff, Billboard is talking about some emerging artists on their charts. Yes, thank Dave. I always love discovering new music and getting to highlight these new artists. So Billboard released the new artists that will be appearing on their charts on the week of October 7th. Some names to look out for are PD, full name Peter Martin. He is a singer who made his way breakthrough through TikTok at first with comedy sketches. However, it's his third album, USA, that got Billboard's attention. We also have Chapel Rowan, who is a pop singer, and she started releasing music in 2017. However, she later started collaborating with producer Dan Nigro, who wrote songs for artists like Olivia Rodrigo and Conan Gray, and Chapel Rowan's album, Rise and Fall of a Midwest Princess was recently released. The final artist I want to discuss today is... Um, um, uh, I got it. Charles Wesley Goodwin. Uh, Godwin, yes, a, country, it, a country folk singer. It's a country folk artist, and he is actually on tour now with Zach Bryan for his Burn, Burn, Burn tour. And he also had a new release um, in September. So Dave, um, what advice do you have for emerging artists? Uh, you know me, Amanda, uh, prominent music manager, Dave Brown over here, launching careers of artists all over the world. Uh, I would say uh, write good songs and make sure they're very snippable on social media. Write me one great chorus and get that onto a TikTok video as quickly as you can. I say that a little facetiously, Amanda, but I think there's some truth to it. Get a good hook, get it out there, get it under some video and just hope it catches fire. I totally agree. And some advice I received a while ago was um, don't let perfect be the evil of good. Ooh. So essentially here, sometimes when you're songwriting, there's kind of the tendency where I'm like, you need to get the perfect lyric. And that kind of blocks your mind from just letting the ideas flow. So have fun with it. Write songs that are personal and come from the heart. 
And as you said, write songs that will translate well on social media. (laughs) Write popular music, darn it. If you want to be popular, write popular music. Uh, Amanda, one of the things I love about the digital musical age is that Spotify does a decent job of curating some new music for me. Every week they offer you that Discover Weekly function uh, as a drop-down. I would say their algorithm's a little off with what I'm looking for right now. I wish it was given I want to connect to, but I do like discovering music through the uh, Discover the Discover Weekly feature on Spotify. How about you? Yes, me too. Spotify is my go-to music based on what you listen to. So for example, for me it'll be like based off of you, you know you like Alessia Cara, so it'll recognize um recommend songs that are similar to her style, but I'm also guilty of like if I'm in a store and there's a song I never heard before, I will pull out my phone and Shazam the name of that song because yeah. I need to add it to my library. <laughs> yeah, Shazam is definitely a useful useful tool. Well, Amanda, I've got to confess uh, as my perpetual ongoing opportunity of uh, feeling old as all heck as we do this show, uh, I recognized none of these new emerging artists. So that shows just how hip and with it I am. Amanda, have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you so much. That is Amanda Shikarchi with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. Lots of news for the regional news update, including uh, an interesting ombudsman report out of Quebec about access to public services for Indigenous people. And then Brock Richardson stops by to cry in his morning bowl of cereal about the Toronto Blue Jays who are going to migrate home for the winter. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, October the 5th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, yesterday's Google Pixel event showcased a range of new products. Marco Flalo gives you the lowdown. And there's a new horror movie streaming on Disney+. Plus. Michael McNeely shares his review of No One Will Save You. And uh, we'll see if I have to close my eyes and not listen to Michael too closely because I might get scared. But the hour begins with the regional news. Starting in the territories, the Yukon government is considering changing electoral boundaries. There are areas that have experienced population growth. The government wants the boundaries to reflect those population shifts. Premier Ranj Pillai has tabled a proposed amendment to the Territories Elections Act that would allow for the establishment of an Electoral District Boundaries Commission. The next election in the territory is scheduled for 2025. Over to the prairies, the federal government is putting $740,000 towards assessing the feasibility of searching a Winnipeg area landfill for the remains of two First Nations women. Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Gary Anandasangiri describes the scope of the study. It will look at issues of biohazards and, and bio-waste that was identified in the feasibility study. It will be looking at um, uh, additional work on, uh, on uh, conveyor belt, uh, additional uh, work on potentially construction, uh, what, what is required for a search to be done. 
The initial feasibility study found that a search is possible, but did raise those concerns about toxic materials in the landfill. Over to Quebec. Quebec's Ombudsman says the provincial government failed to implement most of the recommendations from a 2019 report that showed Indigenous people suffered discrimination when accessing public services. The Vien Commission made 142 recommendations to improve the way police, the justice system, youth protection, health and social services work with Indigenous people. Deputy Ombudsman Claude Dussault gave an update on the progress that has been made. We're currently just 32%, so close to one third. We do hope that in a couple of years here, we're going to reach at least the 50% benchmark and keep going in that direction. We have to understand that the reconciliation process is a long-term process. It won't happen tomorrow. But we have to keep focus on it and keep moving in the right direction. Dussault identified one big issue. One of our main findings in the follow-up of the VA Commission is the fact that there was a lot of good initiative, but they are piecemeal. The big missing part is a global strategy, a systematic strategy. Sound familiar? A lack of strategy in piecemeal policy when dealing with people who are marginalized. Ah, common theme that occurs over and over and over again. That's your look at the regional news. Let's get to some sports for a chat with Brock Richardson. The Toronto Blue Jays are out of the Major League Baseball playoffs. The Minnesota Twins won yesterday's game 2-0. The Twins won the series 2-0. The power of the Gemini, I suppose. Blue Jays manager John Schneider expressed a bit of gratitude after the loss. It's hard, you know, and it's hard for every team but one every single year. Um, it was a great group. You know, it, it it's it'll always be a great group. You know, I, I say that every single year, but um, pretty special between veteran guys and guys that have been here for a while. And you know, for me and for the staff and the organization as a whole, you're you're disappointed that that group can't go any farther. Blue Jays pitcher Jose Barrios was pulled in the fourth inning after issuing a leadoff walk. Minnesota proceeded to cash two runs off relief pitcher UC Kikuchi, who's not really a relief pitcher. He only came in in relief. Barrios says he understands the move. So we had to give all we got in this game. And uh, that's what I did. I was trying my heart, uh, pitch by pitch. You know, and that four innings. I started inning with walk of the guy, so we don't have many room to, to give chance. So, I mean, I understand the move, so I have to deal with that. Every coin has two sides, I suppose. The Blue Jays have made the playoffs three of the last four years. The flip side of that coin, the Jays have been swept in all three of those playoff series. Uh, Brock, I don't think optimism and gratitude is what you're feeling this morning. No, not at all. Uh, takeaways from this. First of all, you cannot only score one run in two games and expect to win the series. <laughs> Accurate. <That's> just <laughs> simple. You can't do that. Uh, secondly, the Toronto Blue Jays as an organization is paying you, um, uh, Jose Barrios a ton of money over a long-term contract. You were telling me in a playoff game he's only good for 47 pitches. And as you aptly point out, to turn to a guy in Yusei Kikuchi who doesn't come out of the bullpen very often or at all this season, and you say, okay, you can go do this with a leadoff walk, and let's do this. For one, 
this is I'm not knocking Yusei Kikuchi whatsoever. This is a team decision that was made. It was premeditated. You could see and hear that he was warming up before the game, in the game, and all this. This was planned from the beginning. They said, when we get to this spot and this happens, we are bringing in Yusei Kikuchi full stop. Which, which, by the way, is a terrible idea. It is. It is an absolute terrible idea. My reaction to this is quite simple. I don't put this squarely on the feet of John Snyder. I put this on the feet of the entire organization. Buck Martinez and Dan Schulman, the commentators yesterday, did a phenomenal job in talking about the fact that this was an organizational decision. You are paying a guy buckets of money. You, He's only good to you for 47 pitches? Come on. Like, it's a 0-0 game. What are you doing? I could see Dave if he's in a little bit of trouble and, you know, he's not hitting his spots. He's... He's kind of a little all over the place. Maybe you make that decision, but you don't make it in a 0-0 game when the guy is, for all intents and purposes, throwing a gem. It's yeah, just not he, right. He was pitching so well, Brock. He was pitching so well. And on the flip side, the Minnesota starter, Sonny Gray, kept getting in trouble, but they let him work his way out of the trouble. And and what was happening with Sonny Gray's pitch count? It kept going up and up and up. You were going to get into that bullpen before you had to get into your own bullpen, if you if you just let Jose Barrios uh, do his thing, and I'm not, and let me be clear, I'm not suggesting for a second that without this decision being made, the Blue Jays would have won. I have no idea that that calls for a prediction that I don't have. But but leave him until he gets into trouble. That's that's my biggest takeaway from this. My other takeaway is again we run into stupid base running decision. Vladimir oh, Guerrero getting picked off at second base with. Bo Bichette at the plate. What are we doing that for? Why? Like, just because you simply didn't hear the guy at second base coming behind you, like, use your head, pay attention. Like, let's, you know, let's think about this before we do it. And finally, and I hate to put this on coaches and things like that, but I seriously think because of this decision, you are going to see serious sweeping changes. We've seen this organization pull, and I believe it was Jose Barrios last year when when uh, they were playing the um, Seattle Mariners, and they were up 8-1. John Steiner comes walking out, takes him out again, and what happened? They lost an 8-1 to lead. This cannot happen. We need to see sweeping changes, and I think you're going to see that because of this decision. Really, really bad management from top to bottom yesterday. Yeah, some questionable decisions and a total lack of attention to detail throughout this series, and that's the thing about the playoffs. That's the thing about baseball. Attention to detail is everything uh, because baseball is a cruel cruel mistress brock one quick thought here on the way out all four of these uh, wild card round series ended in two games all four series are over in the books finito done kind of uh, lackluster there was really i would tell you the only good series well actually the, i thought the blue jays twins game yesterday was actually pretty good pretty compelling but the only good series that also ended in a sweep was the brewers and the diamondbacks where there was actual lead changes and momentum shifts otherwise everything was just kind of a foregone conclusion right from the drop yeah i would have i would have liked to have agreed with you that the blue jays series uh, or the game yesterday was compelling, but it was compelling for the wrong reasons because it was compelling as to when they were going to bring in Yusei Kikuchi. And I was screaming at the TV and my wife literally said, what the heck is wrong with you? I'm like, they're going to lose this game because of this decision. But yeah, it's, it's yeah. I mean, they were all good. I'm looking forward to the next round. This yeah. is 
the last time that we're going to talk about the Blue Jays, obviously they can go fly home north and be happy. And I, there's a bit of a relief for me. I don't have to have a, a vested interest. I can watch this as a reporter and not have to worry about it. There are some really good series coming up. I, I'm looking forward to the uh, Texas and Baltimore series. I think that's going to yeah, be incredible. Series. Uh, the Atlanta Braves and the Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia Phillies divisional matchup or rematch from last year's divisional series. Yeah, I mean this is these are all good series, and the one the one that I would say to you as a question mark, and I put this as a question mark because I don't know how this team's gonna do is the Arizona Diamondbacks oh my and the LA Dodgers. What are the LA Dodgers gonna be in the playoffs? They've had a history of of sometimes not doing so well in the playoffs. Are they gonna be the good team that can win the World Series? Are they gonna choke in the round we don't know there's yeah. lots of questions time time for you round. to get on the diamondbacks train with me time to slither with the slither crew that's uh, who we're rooting for the rest of the way brock brock have a great day talk to you tomorrow yep will do that is brock richardson at the ami sports desk coming up after the break google is showing off a whole bunch of new pixel products marco flalo will give you the lowdown. this is now with dave brown on ami tv Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Google held an event yesterday. The Pixel 8 and Pixel 8 Pro smartphones were unveiled. Mark Aflalo is the co-host of Access Tech Live. Hello, Mark. Hello, Dave. How are you? Mark, I am fantastic. So awesome. uh, what are the big takeaways from Google's unveiling of the uh, Pixel 8 and the uh, Pixel 8 Pro? Well, obviously, two new pieces of hardware in obviously the 8 and the 8 Pro with upgraded cameras, cool stuff across the board. We'll talk about the differences in a second. Um, we got a new Pixel Watch, Pixel Watch 2, which has a lot more smarts from the, the Fitbit family ever since their acquisition of Fitbit about uh, three or four years ago. And some pretty cool software announcements, some that are going to be available right now in Android 14, which is going to be available when these phones are out next week but some that they previewed that we're not even going to see hands-on for who knows when, maybe end of the year, maybe next year. A lot of the stuff comes out in other countries before it even makes its way to Canada. Mm. So we're not 100% sure, but a lot of innovation coming from Google. What's the uh, compare and contrast on the two phones of the, uh, the Pixel 8 and the Pixel 8 Pro? Well, number one, across the board, a little bit more round of a design, a little bit thinner across the board in terms of the overall look and feel. A couple of new color options, that's kind of consistent across the board. The big differences, though, other than price, which we'll talk about in a second, is, of, of course, camera system. You get an extra camera with that new telephoto with a 5x optical zoom on the Pro. You have a 6.7-inch on the Pro versus the 6.2-inch on the regular uh, Pixel 8, 8 gigs of RAM to start on the Pixel 8 versus 12 on the Pro, which is obviously to help power all that extra smarts that goes inside. And weight, I mean, the Pro is going to be, it, it is larger, so it's about 7.5 ounces, whereas the regular Pixel 8 is uh, ringing in at 6.6 ounces, which also means that you okay. get a bigger battery across the board on the Pixel 8 Pro. Starting price point, of course, if you're going to go with the entry-level specs on the devices, 
Pixel 8 949 Canadian, available to pre-order now. It's coming out in a week from today. And the Pixel 8 Pro 1349 oh. Canadian, also available to pre-order now and available in a week. You know, I, I heard you I heard you moan there for well, no, I, there, I, I, mean... I, I, I exclaimed a little bit there, Mark, because it seems like maybe that's that's a bit of a price jump for the Google flagships. I, 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 I feel like they made their space in the industry, in the market, by actually being a little bit lower on the price point than, say, the iPhones or the Samsungs. Yeah, this is actually about a hundred bucks more expensive on the entry level side for the pro. About a hundred bucks more than they started with even last year. It's sign of inflation, sign of the times. Yeah. I think we're going to see incremental update, you know, increases like this. It seems more significant when you look at it from one year to the other. The interesting thing about a Pixel lineup, though, is uh, in the Canadian market. They're still offering subsidies at uh, different different carriers, so whether Rogers, Telus, et cetera, et cetera. So you can actually get into this device for a lower price point if you did want to upgrade. Mm -hmm. But the question at the end of the day for people is going to be, do I upgrade? And that really comes down to you know individual <laughs> taste and needs. <laughs> yeah, taste needs, budget, all that, all that good stuff. Mark, the one thing that I'll mention here, and I think I bring this up frequently when I talk to you about the Google Pixel line of phones, they're maybe not as dominant in the marketplace as Google would hope but it seems as though people who've made the move are extremely happy with the move that they made well you know i've talked about this before and on google branded phones you're not getting any of that bloatware any of that pre-installed skins and software which people like i'm not going to knock them I mean, people like the samsung ui people like the you know the old lg ui when they were still making phones but you know google designs these devices originally it was basically just a basically a blueprint saying okay kind of like microsoft does with surface and says this is how we want you to build phones this is the kind of features but it's gone beyond that now it's no longer a blueprint they're actually making some money off this stuff so it makes sense that they would actually push the envelope a little bit and and competition's healthy right especially in the android market there are you know per capita more android phones operating system out there than iphone um that being said google is not the dominant player out there samsung yeah. is but they're still they're still obviously making a good play for it yeah, ultimately, I'm sure for Google, they're not necessarily trying to uh, win over an Apple user. I think the Apple ecosystem is pretty secure. Amanda Shikarchi, our entertainment reporter, referred to it as the Apple Orchard uh, earlier <laughs> in the show, which I thought was fantastic. So yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that Google is necessarily trying to take aim at iPhones or Apple directly, but for them, it's about luring over a couple Samsung users. I know when I was upgrading yeah. my phone a couple years ago, a few of my uh, uh, Pixel people were like, "Man, you you got to at least." least get your hands on one of these to check it out because you might find the experience is not as difficult to transition as you think so that, that's probably the target they're looking for and then maybe, and then maybe sweeping up some of the smaller android players as well yeah, they, I mean, some of the smaller Android players aren't even there anymore. I mean, Samsung is the one coming out with some lower-cost models. LG's out of the market entirely. Uh, companies like HTC don't exist anymore. Yeah, Huawei, Huawei is not even available yeah. in the Canadian market. I mean, so it's an interesting play out there because there's not many Android options other than some of these, like, you know, Asus has an ROG phone and some real high-end stuff. So it really is between Google and Samsung. And they play together, don't forget, you know? Yeah, they do. Everything. All the tablets on the Samsung side, all the phones on the Samsung side are using Android uh, operating systems. So just their own variation of it. So there is a bit of cannibalization there, but I think it's almost it's almost playful because Samsung really does have a dominant hold in the market when it comes yeah. to Android devices.
So, Mark, let's go from the phones to the watch because the yeah. uh, Pixel 2 watch was shown off yesterday. What's uh, What makes this one so interesting? Why, why might this be the time for someone to jump into the Google watch business? Well, if you're tired of that whole square look that Apple's been putting out for pretty much almost 10 years now, or almost actually 10 years in March, um, and you want the more of a rounded design and you want to have something that ties into your ecosystem if you're an Android user, then the Pixel Watch 2 is definitely one that you're going to want to jump into. Starting price point, 479 Canadian, so that's completely affordable. That's on the verge of almost being a gift sometimes if you're buying it for a family member. Oh, man. A lot I, of got, I, got, I got to get into the Aflalo family. You, you got to come over. You know, you can, we can have a little, you know, stocking for you over the Aflalo <laughs> menorah and fireplace. Um Three new sensors on board to give you kind of deeper insights into your health. And this is really from the uh, acquisition of Fitbit. Um, it works alongside really cool AI algorithms. So you've got a new heart rate sensor, a new stress management, which was a Fitbit feature that's now come to the watch, a mindfulness sensor, and now a thermometer, which is kind of interesting. Something that's not only on the watch, but it's actually in, in, the Pixel, in the Pixel phones as well. And they're expecting FDA approval. What they're going to use the thermometer for really is kind of up in the air. They're not saying this is to check if your baby has a fever. It's more to check, you know, food temperature and different things like that. Not something I'd really jump towards and say, hey, I'm so happy I have a thermometer on it. But if you can imagine what that metric does in conjunction with other data, that might be where it's a bit more significant. Mm. There is a holy trinity when it comes to uh, companies and their devices and accessories. You get phone, you get watch, you get earbuds. What <laughs> was Google showing off with their Pixel Buds Pros? So here's the other thing. Pixel Buds Pro on the hardware side, other than new colors, they're the exact same pieces of hardware that were available last year. They're pretty impressive pieces of hardware. The cool thing is in the software update, one of the standout features, I think, this year is what's called conversation detection. It allows you to really keep the buds in your ear if they're comfortable, of course, pretty much all the time. So if you're listening to music, you're listening to a podcast and someone walks up to you and starts talking to you, it will detect that. It'll use software and AI to detect that you're having a conversation. It'll pause the music and open up that, uh, that noise cancellation so you can hear in transparency mode. And when you're done, it knows you're done and it goes back to playing your music where you left off. I do not trust, I do not trust that technology. <laughs> Well, you have to try it to believe it. And that's one of the things that this is one of those features that we're not quite sure when it's going to be available. There's hinting that it will be available next week when the phones come out. But they also mentioned a whole bunch of other features that aren't going to be available for probably till the end of the year. So that's really the big move on the Pixel Buds Pro side. Nothing new on the hardware or sensor-wise that's really just in the mm. software. Uh, that is something, the feature you just mentioned is something that I know Apple's been playing with. I know Samsung was touting yeah. it on their uh, Buds a couple of years ago. What have been the reviews on that side of the technology? Um, I could tell you from, you know, Stephen Scott's point of view, he loves the feature on the AirPods. Like he was really? saying how okay. the adaptive, the adaptive noise cancellation worked really well, well across different environments. I'm of the mindset that, you know, keeping earbuds in your ear uh, all day, number one, it's just not comfortable. It's not realistic. Bad Although some people do. Too. I mean, I see people with a, with a white, you know, ear, you know, AirPod hanging out of the ear all day long. Don't have a clue how they hear me, but they do.
and uh, and clearly they have they have way more music going on in their head than than I do in my life. Yeah, you got to. Uh, the, it involves a lot of trips to the ear cleaning specialists when you keep yeah, headphones in all day. Oh boy, uh, Mark, got to get out of here. But what's coming up on Access Tech Live on AMI TV in one hour and thirty three minutes? No, one hour and thirty two minutes on the pin. Oh no, oh no, we have a TV show today. Uh, Arja Shepard's joining us from a really cool event that's going on in Toronto called the hashtag This is So This Is MS. We're going to be talking about accessible trick or treating and of course we're going to rip apart all these google announcements in detail <laughs> i love it that's mark aflalo he's the co-host of access tech live you can find mark in montreal you can find access tech live thursdays at noon eastern time on ami tv you can find the pulse on ami audio this weekend joita gupta will chat with disability activist katherine frazy together they discuss their her new book Dispatches from Disabled Country. That's The Pulse weekends, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, there's a new horror. Got to be careful with that one. A new horror movie streaming on Disney+. Plus. Michael McNeely has a review of No One Will Save You. But first, here is the Paris Sport Update with Greg Westlake. Hello and welcome back to the Parasport Update. I'm Greg Westlake. We begin in Italy as Canadian wheelchair tennis star Rob Shaw took part in the Sardinia Open. In quad doubles, Shaw partnered with Niels Vink of the Netherlands. The top-ranked duo cruised through the quarterfinals and semifinals on their way to victory, securing their fourth doubles win of the 2023 season. Turning the page, Canada's Paris cycling team has been announced for the Parapan American Games in Santiago, Chile. The eight-person roster includes Paralympians Keely Shaw, Mike Sumetz, and Charles Moreau. Alexander Hayward and Tarek Dahab will be making their multi-sport games debuts, while former Paralympic skier Mel Pemble will compete in her first major summer games. And Nathan Clement will return to the event for the first time since 2015, this time on his trike, not in the pool. Athletes in the hand cycle and trike categories will compete in road events, while riders in the cycle category will compete in road and track disciplines. Changing course, Canada is set to battle at the Women's U25 Wheelchair Basketball World Championship in Thailand. Matches begin October 3rd and can be streamed on the IWBF's YouTube page. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hulu has a new movie for horror and sci-fi fans. No One Will Save You follows the story of an anxious woman who discovers an alien intruder in her home. Okay, that's a good premise. She attempts to escape, but then the alien stalks her. Oh my gosh, we are talking about an interesting premise over here. The film is available on Disney Plus in Canada. Michael McNeely has thoughts on the film. Michael is live in studio, just a few feet away from me. Hey, good morning, Michael. 50 feet, that's five feet. I think that's <laughs> yeah, if you were stalking me, the restraining order uh, would not uh, apply to Studio 7. So, Michael, the, uh, the movie is gaining some praise for stylistic choices. What immediately stood out to you? Well, the central idea is that she doesn't really talk because she's by herself. So she wouldn't really have any reason to talk to anyone anyway. 
that's an interesting premise to hold an entire film, because we usually used to have in dialogue, or at least more than one character to talk to. But as we quickly learned, there's a reason why she doesn't talk, and the aliens probably don't want to talk to her either. So because there's a lack of dialogue, that means the movie is using a lot of visual and sound cues. I know for me as someone who is legally blind, I would find that really difficult. How was that experience for you from an accessibility perspective? Well, there's a descriptive audio track, but I haven't watched it or listened to it because I'm deaf, so I just relied on the subtitles. And it takes a while to get used to just paying attention to all the times that she sighs out loud. Um, it's just uh, a weird dynamic because you're paying attention to that more than other things. So the question is, why is she sighing? Why is she stepping? What is she doing? What is the, what is the idea behind these things? You're trying to bring that home. You're trying to make it a point. Mm. But sometimes I had a hard time trying to find a point. Yeah, I can see how that would actually be a pretty exhausting experience to go through the entire movie, not on edge because of the plot, but on edge because you're just trying to follow along. Well, yes, I mean, the whole idea is that she's supposed to be quiet for the aliens in her in her house. So I want to know why she's sighing and how loud she's sighing, because she can have a quiet sigh and you can have a loud sigh. You sure can. <laughs> So, Michael, the New York Times described the movie as a nail-biter. How intense did you find it? Sorry, what was the question again? The New York Times described the movie as a nail-biter. How intense did you find it? Oh, how intense. Well, I feel like I would like to, to reference The Quiet Place, because I like that intensity better, because they are not allowed to talk either, because the aliens would kill them. But here... Um, the intensity kind of wavered over a long period of time because I thought that the character was doing things that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. If I was in that situation, for example, I would be very quiet. Mm. Um, I would try and make sure I understood, you know, what surfaces make different sounds. Like the carpet here, of course, this entire room is soundproof, so I would be happy to be here. But um, there's just things like that that I'm not sure that the character was paying attention to, and that kind of just makes me, you know, give up the game or mm. not be so invested in the game. There is a lot of film theory around what makes a great horror film. You've got your own rubric. You've got your own system of evaluating a horror movie. So you've identified four elements that make a scary movie successful. The first is good characterization. What did you think of the main character, Bryn? I thought the, the, the ideas were there for a good character. We discover that Bryn is Bryn because we, we watch her go to her mother's gravestone, and we see that the mother is the mother of Bryn, so we guess that's why she's Bryn. Um, and she has a lot of different characterizations. She's a dancer, she is she's a clothes designer, and she likes to work with miniatures. The miniatures actually becomes important later on, but the clothes design aspect, I was wishing there would be more to it or more talking about it. Talking is, is, you know, the chosen word because there's no talking, but at least what do you have to do with anything or that kind of thing. So I think it's a good start as a character, but we need to we need to bring it back home. We need to keep talking about these issues, otherwise why I mentioned them in the first place. 
Number two on the McNeely rubric of a good horror film is a cat and mouse dynamic. How did No One Will Save You do with the cat and mouse aspect of the film? I think I was infested, as I mentioned, for maybe the first 20 minutes of its hour and a half long one time. But ultimately, it just gets a little bit old after a while once, you know, like if you and I were fighting each other for 90 minutes and it was a deadly game, you'd be like, why, why isn't this over yet? Um, I mean, to some aspect, it can work. But other times, you have to be careful because, you know, you have to raise the stakes, you have to lower the stakes, you have to do different things each time. I didn't see that happening here. I saw her more or less getting into the same fight over and over and over again. Mm. And then when she did, you know, defeat one alien, there was another alien. So I was like, oh my goodness, we have to do this then again. <laughs> yeah, th th there's a reason why boxing matches are 36 minutes and mixed martial arts fights are 25 minutes, because you can't just watch something like that for 90 minutes. It's going to get repetitive. Michael, you said another word there, which is also part of the McNeely rubric of a great horror film, stakes. The audience needs to know what's at stake, not what's on the plates, but what's at stake. How informed were you as a viewer in No One Will Save You? Again, the aliens are not really seen as a threat until later on, because we don't see the cataclysmic effect of their oppression and their invasion. And as a regard, it's easy to assume that maybe this is all Justin Prince had. It's not. I'm, I'm happy to say it's not. It's not really a spoiler to tell you that. But the, I want to say, you know, for example, it's hard to watch a movie with just one person and to feel that it magnifies to the entire world. So I would have liked to see, you know, watching TV or something, seeing what's happening in New York City, seeing what's happening in other parts of the world, just to bring home that the aliens are here and they're invading. And there's a part where Bryn goes to her small town of Mill, Mill River. I enjoyed that, but it was only two minutes at most. And it was just a, a cursory look at what's happening to the townspeople, but I needed more of that, I think, to understand what's really going on. Number four in your evaluation of a good horror movie is, the, this is interesting, the film must have a clear understanding of its own plot. I'm gonna say that again. The film must have a clear understanding of its own plot, which by the way, I think that in of itself is a very interesting observation. But what did you think of the overall storyline of the film? Well, this is the part where I tell everyone that I had to look up the ending of this film on Reddit, which is not really a great look for oh, anyone, dear. including myself. Oh dear. But uh, the Reddit fanboys and you know, some goes, but mostly fanboys, I'm, I'm probably safe to say. They they helped me understand this film, but I just felt like, well, I mean, you could have done it a little bit better. You could have made it more clear with some of the signposting that was missing. Um, like, for example, some of my favorite movies are Alien, Aliens, Jaws, all those things. I, I know what's going on. I understand the dynamics. I understand the characters. I understand, you know, what... What, what success looks like, what a win looks like, just like you were talking about the blue chairs, they need to understand what a win looks like. Mm -hmm. But I understand what a win looks like. In this movie, I don't understand what the win, what the win would look like. What does it mean if Win fights, you know, two aliens, but there's still 500 other aliens left? I mean, I mean, I mean, I, I just, I just give up, yeah. you know, at this yeah. point. 
No, Michael, I think that's really interesting for any film, not just horror films, but any genre of film, that the plot needs to make sense. You can't sit there as a viewer in the audience and be like, why on earth would that happen? Because what do they call that? Plot armor, plot conveniences, where there's simply a narrative device being utilized to bail a character out of a situation or to get you to point B, rather than a real action and reaction, maybe going back to the cat and mouse dynamic that you were talking about, which is something is forcing the character into making a decision to move the storyline forward. No, I mean, that's a great point, that maybe this film would have been better as 20 minutes or 30 minutes. But when you when you stretch it out, when you have so many unnecessary battles, it's just like, why are we doing this? We're just doing this just to have another fight. We're doing this just to fill out the time. Yeah, I agree with you that. No One Will Save You has garnered some pretty good praise from notable individuals. Stephen King has said nice things about it, you know, maybe one of the greatest horror writers ever. Guillermo del Toro, one of the finest, like, alternative directors in Hollywood, has offered it some praise. Where do you stand on the movie? Well, you know what? I love both of those men um, beyond any normal measure. Stephen King basically informed my childhood, yeah. starting with Carrie yeah. and The Shining, and Guillermo del Toro. I hope he stays alive for a very long time. Um, they both have experiences with horror that I don't have. They both are nuanced and well-versed in all subgenres of horror. I think, just for my own personal taste and the taste that I share with the AMI community, I just prefer my horror films to be a little bit more two-sided than one-sided battles, mm. and I prefer them to be more versed into psychological realism than having some sort of supernatural Lovecraftian element that can just be more yeah. dead. Yeah. Uh, Michael, I am right there with you. I, I do wonder, I do wonder how much of maybe the feeling you have about this film is in that stylistic choice, that the stylistic choice might have appealed to Stephen King and Guillermo del Toro with sound cues and visual cues and doing something a little different with the premise, but much like how I struggle watching a film that's deeply subtitled, it's one of the reasons why I don't watch a lot of foreign films with subtitles, I tend to watch the dubbed version, it's, it's simply because it becomes an exhausting experience Experience, and I'm removed from the movie. So how am I going to enjoy something that I'm removed from? Well, I think the main thing is to go back to a quiet place. Look at that, because I think a quiet place is a successful film. Yeah, it has a disability element, which I'm really passionate about, and it doesn't. It doesn't mean that I, I want cochlear implants to be used to cure all the aliens, <laughs> but it means that you have. Maybe five minutes of intensity, five minutes of intensity of crawling to the station, watching for aliens. That's fun, that's intense. But it's just five minutes, and then afterwards, and move on to something different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael, one last thought here before, uh, before I say goodbye to you. You mentioned that you like perhaps the more psychological element of a horror film. I've been seeing the previews for the new Exorcist movie while I've been watching football. I can't really watch scary movies anymore, but I think I'm gonna go to this one. It looks really good. So to be Debbie Downer, but take a look at the reviews now. They're, um, they're oh, no. crushing it right now. Oh, no. So I'm sorry to tell you that. <laughs> Bursting my bubble. Thanks for that, Michael. I appreciate the pessimism on a Thursday morning. Michael, thank you for this. Have a great day. I mean, there's other horror films that you're going to, you're going to have. Um, I think we're going to do the Usher, the House of Usher on Netflix, so I think you'll probably enjoy that one with Mike Flanagan. I think the
the interest is just, just problematic because they're just cashing in something older and trying to, you know, we've talked about this, they're just spinning their wheels. Yeah, the, the new Saw movie's out as well. Uh, Saw 10 or Saw X or whatever it is is also out right now. So yeah, there's no shortage of Halloween-themed stuff going on at the movie theaters. Michael, thanks for this. Have a great day. No problem, you too. That's entertainment critic Michael McNeely with a review of No One Will Save You. I turned to a camera that did not exist there. <laughs> Still working on the blocking around here. The film is available on Disney Plus in Canada and it's rated PG-13. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael D. McNeely, at Michael D. D. McNeely, and uh, McNeely is spelt M-C-N-E-E-L-Y. Coming up after the break, it's Fat Bear Week. Time to celebrate the finest bears Alaska has to offer. Alex Smythe will chat about this annual tradition in the roundtable conversation. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown is nearing its end for this Thursday edition of the show, but there's lots of live programming coming your way. This beautiful Thursday, Access Tech Live hits the airwaves at noon on AMI-tv. And Kelly and Ramya take over at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show and can offer up a little bit of an amuse-bouche of what's coming up on the show today. Hello, Ramya. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Danielle and I are having a lot of fun this week. We're talking to Fern Lullum today about people-pleasing. She's been bringing up these kind of oh, man. Uh, mental health and emotional <laughs> health conversations. I know. Every topic, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> As well. I, I, don't, I don't need to talk to my therapist anymore. I can just listen to Fern, Fern segments. She's like Legit. talking right to me. Legit, exactly. So she's going to talk about it. Obviously, it's very impactful. And, you know, she always brings in this angle of lived uh, experience with disability and how we can um, relate that way to, to her experiences and to each other's experiences as well. So a lot of empathy in these conversations. Mary Mamaliti is joining us with simple uh, and easy tips to make your uh, Thanksgiving enjoyable and affordable. Box so stuffing. Aspect... Box stuffing was on sale what? yesterday at the grocery store, um, and I definitely bought some. Okay. Have you bought some before? Do you know? Oh yeah. Good? Oh, I mean, I've, oh, okay. it's totally, it's totally uh, disgustingly acceptable. <laughs> okay, it sounds good. Yeah, I didn't want to sound like I was beyond box stuffing, <laughs> but I'd never tried it. Uh, also, Laura Bain is stopping by to give us tips on different things, including avoiding conflict at the dinner table during Thanksgiving. Oh she man. Now. <laughs> yeah, we're covering all the bases for Thanksgiving. People pleasing and uh, and not getting in fights at Thanksgiving. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the kind of stuff people need to know, Ramya. They need to know. Except the affordable things that people are bringing to your house for Thanksgiving, like box stuffing. It, but if they, if they, I won't bring it in the box. I will make it and be like, oh, no, you no. You will make I it? And then, uh, and first yeah, of all, okay. as if I'm being invited to Thanksgiving dinners, nobody <laughs> wants to spend time with me. It's it's better. It's better that I no. just... That's not true. I'm going to be in Montreal. We'll do for an my, AMI Thanksgiving. No, no, no. I'll oh. be in Montreal for my friend's 40th birthday party, so I, I will be at an, I, I'll be at an Irish pub somewhere doing a different kind of Thanksgiving. Uh, Ramya, thank you. Don't go too far, though, because Alex Smythe wants to talk about a seasonal tradition unlike any other in the Arctic parts of America. Yeah, Dave, that's right. One of America's favorite competitions is back. And no, we're not talking about uh, the baseball playoffs. It's Fat Bear Week. Woo! 
the annual event that takes place in Katmai National Park and Reserve in Alaska. Michelle Franson sets the lineup. Get those brackets out. The tournament-style Fat Bear Week contest is as wide open as bears waiting to feast on fatty Alaskan salmon. Online voting has started for the annual competition where you get to weigh in on the fattest bears in Alaska. A dozen contestants are featured with photos posted showing them packing on the pounds, beefing up during the salmon run, and ahead of hibernation. Favorites like Otis are back, but facing some big competition. There are bear camps that keep watching the park, and the contest runs through next week. Michelle Franzen, ABC News. Well, I got to commend Michelle Franzen. I counted four puns in that like 30 second report. So well done, Michelle. Well done. So the reason why I wanted to bring this topic forward, I, I it's such a fun, light, silly competition. But I'm curious, do you guys believe that this kind of helps with conservation efforts by having something like this to raise the awareness. So, uh, so Ramya, let's start with you on this. I'm not sure about the conservation efforts, maybe just because I don't have enough information aside from what we just heard, but uh, the the awareness part of it is definitely, I think, you know, up there, right? It's a kind of fun way to keep in touch. Um, I think through that, you get the conversations around conservation, around just, it's kind of like having a, a live discovery channel discussion on what's going on with the bears um but you know overall it's just like a fun thing that they're doing yeah i don't know about con like i don't know about conservation right maybe if they're making a little bit of money off fat bear week and they can put that towards some conservation efforts in the alaskan national parks like there, there might be something there but i yeah i don't know about conservation i, I would say that rummy is onto something though alex in regards to the education side of this because you do get to learn a little bit about some of these grizzlies and some of these uh, brown bears mm -hmm. as they're uh, working their way through what their diet is how long their hibernation is like i can see from a very like elementary school perspective Perspective of learning about bears, you get some education opportunities, which maybe one day in the long term through many tentacles would eventually get to someone working in conservation, but I don't necessarily see a direct corollary. Yeah, that's fair. I, I wanted to pose the question because obviously, you know, a big part of this is the bears need to feed and, and having that steady stream mm. of salmon and other fatty fish that are going to be in that area that they're going to be feasting on. You're kind of cheering them on to eat as much as they can because that's <laughs> what they need in their cycle. So eat more, eat more. But then that conversation could evolve to basically become, oh, well, we need more salmon there. We need more food for, for these bears to get fatter for our, for our own amusement. So. I thought it was like a, an, an interesting caveat to this whole conversation. Yeah, it's an angle for sure. Like it's definitely like an abstract thought. I, I just don't know if I see like the one-to-one -one connection, but you're right. Like if people get attached to these bears, they're gonna want these bears to keep living. So they'll be upset, yeah. you know, if climate change goes and takes away their favorite ice flow or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, the salmon run component of this, right? The bears are oftentimes pulling the salmon right out of the, uh, right out of the rivers as they're working their way during a uh, breeding and spawning season. A very Canadian thing, right? This is obviously in Alaska, but the entire Pacific coast, there's tons of salmon runs going on. Ramya, where would you rank that in terms of the Canadian travel experience? Would you want to be around one of these oh, salmon runs? Or are you too concerned about the bears that might see you as a hibernation snack? I mean, <laughs> I guess that's always going to be a concern. But the thing is, yes, if they if they're doing this right, where you can, I was thinking the same thing actually. Kind of looping back, in, looping this back in with the conservation efforts is this is 
kind of an alternative experience to going to a zoo, right? Or going to somewhere where um, animals are not in their natural habitats. Animals are being uh, taken and put into like places where we can then go see them and uh, get to know them that way. But they're not, you know, like we're trying to move away from things like that for the most part, or at least having more open discussions about why this stuff is no longer as acceptable. So yeah, in that sense, going to see them in their natural habitats, going to kind of learn from them and real life um <laughs> around what they're doing yes they're bears and that's the biggest concern like can i just hang out but I, I, they did in the clip they said bear cam so it's not even like people are around i don't know yeah, if i should be there it's 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 <laughs> very it's very digitized it's a lot of like uh, digital pictures yeah. or, like remote cameras uh, alex, so maybe there can be like a viewing party somewhere I, else. alex i would argue that the northern lights is still probably the canadian tourism experience that i most want to do uh but where would you rank a salmon run you know, I, I would love to see the salmon run. I, it's something that I've been fascinated with. And I have seen videos and stuff of different camera people, videographers, like, I guess, eco-tourists, for lack of a better word, heading out there, and especially along, like, the Campbell River area in BC, where it's really prominent that you'll see people out there taking photos, taking videos of these bears just snacking the salmon right out of the river into their mouth. I think it would be a phenomenal experience for all the things that Ramya said that this is kind of like a new level of ecotourism where you're really seeing animals in their environment as they normally would behave. I would like to go with someone who is a a uh, fully sighted, fully <laughs> hearing guide and, and yeah, maybe yeah, personal yeah. bodyguard just in Some case bear one spray. of the bears. Uh, it, it's bear a, a salmon yeah. uh, a sparse day. You know, if you want to do the safer experience, if you want to see a fat bear eat a lot of fish really quickly, take me to one of those sushi restaurants with the conveyor belt <laughs> and just watch me uh, maul it right off there. Uh, Alex, thank you for this. Enjoy Fat Bear Week. Ramya, you have a nice day as well. You enjoy Fat Bear Week too. I'm now in the mood for some sushi. So where can you find some sushi on a Thursday afternoon in Toronto? It's obviously none. There's no sushi to be eaten in this entire city. That's all the time there is for the show today. Until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.